0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There is no line when you walk through security at the state capitol these days. It's the lull before the legislative session gets underway next month. So it was a quick walk up to Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper's office for our regular conversation. Governor, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. There are members of your party who see the Electoral College as a place to change the outcome of the presidential election, to choose an alternative to Donald Trump. Do you think the Electoral College should take this on, or do you see the presidential election as a fait accompli?
1: Well, certainly, (laughs) you know, I understand the frustration of, of these folks, but I think the election is over, and now we probably have... No choice, I think, but to, we're going to inaugurate Donald Trump. Have people tried to persuade you otherwise? <laughs> yes, more than a few. Uh-huh. Uh, and this is America, right? The pendulum swings one way, it swings back the other. And this way it swung further and in a different direction than pretty much everybody thought. But, you know, we didn't have assassinations. There wasn't revolution in the streets. This is where we transition into a new administration. The last time we spoke, you had not
0: made contact with Mr. Trump or his transition team. Has that changed? Well,
1: there are some people on his transition team that that I know, and we have established contact.
0: Can you say who they are
1: and what? No, you? at this point, I'm just we're trying to build some connections so that as issues arise, we want to have a, a places where we can voice our concerns. Issues like what? You name them, any of all health care issues or transportation issues, immigration issues. Are you requesting a meeting with Trump himself? No, not at this point. I mean, governors don't say, hey, I need need an audience with the new president. But that'll happen. Uh, You know, I'm going to see him in uh, early February. The National Governors Association will be there. Generally, that works out so that most governors, I assume I will be one of them, that will have an opportunity to meet the new president. That is to say you're not going to the inauguration. I didn't say that. Oh, that would uh, mean seeing him in January. Yeah, that, well, I don't know whether I'm going to the inauguration. I haven't been invited. I'm not sure I could do it in my schedule anyway, because hmm. I'm going to uh, be at the World Economic Forum. We've committed to it, and it's stuff that's very useful to Colorado. If you've got a few moments with Mr. Trump, what do you think you'd say or ask? Oh, I think I'd, I'd want to hear more on in terms of his economic development, how he plans to stimulate more jobs. And, I, you know, the, saving some jobs from getting outsourced, I fully expect you will pursue that and find some more examples of that. But as we know in Colorado firsthand, technology is eliminating entire professions in giant leaping steps. You know, how is he looking at autonomous vehicles? And, and what happens if all of a sudden so many of the people that are driving vehicles for a living, if suddenly in five years they're not able to have those jobs, or let's say 10 years, probably more likely, truck drivers. How are we going to put those people to work? And what are the ways, does he have ideas in terms of workforce training? I'd love to talk to him about our apprenticeship program we're doing here, the work with LinkedIn and the the Markle Foundation. I think that's cutting edge in terms of getting people from one career to a new, more promising career. I want
0: to talk about your budget and Colorado Statehouse now.
1: Uh, You recently released your draft budget for
0: 2017-18, It increases what the state spends on every student, but uh, still puts the state miles away from where it agreed to be on school funding. Our education reporter, Jenny Brundine found that some school districts are really concerned about how this relates to the minimum wage increase that voters just passed. Particularly in rural districts, bus drivers, custodians, and classroom aides make less than $12 an hour, which is the new... Uh, minimum well, that, wage. It's, a, it's a new minimum wage that we get to in 2020, so sure, but we've that got a means couple of years to get there. There are potentially increases then coming in those rural salaries. Here's Superintendent Rob Sanders from the Buffalo School District in northeast Colorado. This is near
1: Sterling. Sure, I know Buffalo.
2: How are we supposed to cover this $12 uh, minimum wage increase when we have shrinking revenues and we're already deficit spending? Across the state, we've got districts that are about ready to close their doors because they're running out of money.
1: Well, we have on a per capita basis probably more school districts than almost any state I know of. Many people for a long time have talked about how do we consolidate some of these school districts. There's going to be more intense financial pressure on school districts with or without the minimum wage. right? This has been going on for years and years. The Uh, idea behind consolidation, by the way, is you save on administrative
0: expenses because you have one central district for a
1: larger number of schools. Yeah, uh, traditionally the way most states work is they'll have a larger region under one district and try to make sure that they get maximum efficiencies out of things like bus drivers, exactly. Are you saying that consolidations will be a natural outgrowth of this? Well, we've been saying uh, consolidations are a natural outgrowth for the last decade, and this is previous governors as well as myself most communities really resist this because they want to have they want to have control of their own school district, and it, it becomes increasingly more difficult to do that uh, financially to keep control of your own small district. If you're a small town that's not growing, if let's say commodity prices are at low points like we see now, in a rural area, in a rural area, and that there aren't a lot of alternative jobs, you know Sterling. I think they're going to do a little better uh, than some of the other districts. To be honest, you go down to Lamar, you go to Southeast Colorado you see a bunch of school districts that are really facing some difficult choices. And they're exactly right. The minimum wage going up is going to have a disproportionate effect. And some of us lobbied that maybe there should have been geographic set-asides for those places where it is much less expensive to live and where that extra dollar an hour or dollar fifty an hour is really critical. But uh, unfortunately, we couldn't convince anyone that that was uh, the right approach. Any other insight or advice you'd offer to Rob Sanders? There's not much I can say because I know they've already looked at every efficiency they can find. I mean, this has been going on for a couple of decades. And Sanders' district,
0: as you've hinted, isn't the only one concerned. Greeley-Evans is considering things like larger class sizes or eliminating bus
1: service to be able to pay these wage increases. And again, Greeley, relative to many parts of the state, is relatively prosperous. A citizen question
0: now, Seth Levy of Gypsum asks... With the partisan split in the legislature going unchanged, what is your realistic agenda for 2017?
1: Uh, We don't have time to go through the whole thing, so (laughs) what's at the top of your list? What's my realistic agenda, right? So, you know, Seth, I I still think we've got to fight for the hospital provider fee. It's a fee. By any definition, it's a fee. The president, attorney general. Except
0: by the definition of the Republicans, who oppose you in
1: the legislature really, on this issue? Really just the, 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 the Senate president. I mean, he, he is the one who keeps it in committee, and, and we're going to continue to negotiate with him and see if we can find a way that uh, – some sort of a compromise. So, A reclassification of this fee, you believe, would free up
0: more funding for transportation, for education. And, so, and I'll say that you know, this would mean that there might not be refunds under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, People wouldn't get their 20 bucks, no, I, And I think that's legitimate
1: government. for a lot of people. That $20 is, is meaningful. Uh, it's a budgeting maneuver, and it has been highly controversial. I don't what think it's that controversial. F- I think it's pretty obvious. But, but what, what will change a very, in this coming there, session? There's a small group, right? It's less than 25% of the state that opposes it. But that's not our only... Obviously, I think we we have to recognize that, that there is a, a serious possibility, maybe even a probability, that we're not going to succeed in the hospital provider fee because, as you point out, nothing's changed.
0: And so if there's that possibility and and you realize that it is one, do you have a backup plan?
1: Yeah, well, the, uh, we have a backup plan for transportation. We have a backup plan for, you know, education. Each. What are they? But none of your business. <laughs> none of my no, business. No, no, I no. Think, I think you have to find, if you really want to address uh, transportation, you have to figure out some new resources, some new revenues. So Raising the gas tax? So that's uh, raise a gas tax, uh, add a sales tax. There would have to be a vote on raising the gas tax. And there would have to, any of these would require a vote. Okay. And my point is, right now, we're getting clobbered by our competitive neighbors. So uh, Utah right now spends probably double what we spend on transportation, on, on adding infrastructure, probably triple. And they have almost half the population. If you're a young entrepreneur looking at where to start a business and where to, to to have your family, in terms of that statistic, transportation, we're not competing very well. And this is one of those things, you don't see it at first, but all of a sudden you lose your momentum and people start going and saying, oh, it's Austin, Texas is much better, and they've expanded that off-ramp, and it's much easier, not, the traffic jams aren't anywhere near as bad. And once you lose that momentum, which Colorado has right now, it's very hard to get it back. Can I say that there might be people listening who say, oh, if only Colorado would lose a little momentum, <laughs> yeah, the I roads know. wouldn't be so busy I and know. housing wouldn't be so expensive. Yeah. And, and, and those same people, who do, and there are plenty of them who say that. So then all of a sudden you're shedding population because it's just too congested and we haven't invested in our infrastructure. And then suddenly people are getting laid off and suddenly everyone's business is going down, sales are down three or 4%. And then you go back and talk to those same people and they sing a different tune. I was here in the late 1980s and, and kind of going into the 80s, everyone thought we had too many people. You know, there were these, you know, license plate holders that were get away, with Californians, don't come here, and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, the price of oil dropped. We had it went into a recession. It was a deep recession. Real estate prices dropped. Uh, restaurants and retail businesses, their sales went down 5, 10, 15 percent. Nobody wants to see that. And it's, you can't. Have it both ways. You're either going to grow or you're going to shrink. And when you start shrinking, it puts intense pressure on many, many people. So back to the potential solutions. So a raise in the gas tax. What else is on the list for transportation? A possible sales tax. Statewide sales tax. Sales tax. Obviously, if if they were trying to do a sales tax and it was uh, voted down, my guess is that some of these communities like Fort Collins or, or Colorado Springs or Denver, you know, metropolitan Denver, would want to do a regional transportation authority and raise their own money and not use any state money, which is all right, although historically we want to make sure the money we raise gets used all across the state because the rural areas have greater, obviously many more roads, less population. So historically we've always helped subsidize them to a not not a large extent, but a certain extent with the revenue from along the front range helps, helps maintain the quality of the rural road infrastructure. If all the urban areas start doing their own RTAs, you're going to lose that connection between the whole state. And I personally am against that, and and it's not something I want to embrace. Your Uh, predecessor, I remember Bill Ritter,
0: wanted to investigate VMT, vehicle miles traveled, so that you actually uh, have something in your car that measures the miles you travel and charges you accordingly.
1: So there'd be a fee based on how much road you used in the course of a year. Everybody would pay a proportionate amount to what they're used to the roads. Uh, it's certainly the most logical thing you can have. We're actually doing a kind of a test of that now, but it has historically been very unpopular. Part of it is people don't want government under their hood, mm. right? They don't want government to know where they've driven or, or how many, even just how many miles they've driven. So not at the top of your list.
0: Uh, briefly to backups for education funding.
1: If... Wait, 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 just You said not at the top of my list, but... I think it is the most equitable mm. solution. I'm just not sure that politically people will be willing to put up with it. So. And backup for education
0: funding if the hospital provider fee reclassification is again a non-starter. Well, I think in
1: education we'd have to find something that on a broad scale would appeal to the voters of Colorado. Because it would have to go through the vote, whatever tax it would be. Let's say we, we move the income tax back to the where it was 10 years ago. And say, all right, we're going to go back from 4.62 to 5.0, which is what Utah is. Most of our neighbors are in that – most of them are higher than that or in that same range. The income tax has been decreasing in Colorado. Yeah, it was decreased about 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And so, all right, let's say we went back to that, and, and we're going to use it for, only for education and maybe a piece for roads. And here's what we're going to give taxpayers. We're going to – you know, a longer school day, a longer school year, uh, a clear, measurable improvement of achievement, of student achievement – is that going to pass the voters? As, as we both know, getting any tax increase of any kind through voters when you're when you're having this many people losing their jobs and, and whole professions being eliminated by technology, it, it would be a it would be a steep hill. So, any of these solutions for education
0: or transportation, as you see it, require more money coming into this into the state
1: coffers. Yeah, I don't see what we could, we could cut. I mean, the state's been running pretty lean now for the last six seven years. You'd like to see lawmakers take on marijuana home grows. What problems do you see? Well, we have a, any state that allows home growing. We are the we have the largest permissible number of plants people can have uh, per home. And it, it's way out of proportion to, I think, what anyone should be able to grow just for their kind of home consumption or being a caregiver to a couple of people. I think that there needs to be a law. And perhaps there's a safeguard so you can say, if there is someone who needs more plants, and, and they're specifically growing them for these people, maybe we had them come in, they apply for a special license, they pay a little extra, we go and inspect them on a regular basis and, and track their plants. But we know for a fact that there are organized crime syndicates in the state of Colorado now growing marijuana to export it to other states. That is bad for everyone. And you see the home grows as allowing for that. Yeah, it, it makes it almost impossible to enforce. If you talk to local law enforcement, they're saying, well, how do I know? We arrest these guys, and they say they're a home grow. And, and, and we say, well, you've got 90 plants in here. They go, yeah, that's what we're allowed to do, 90 plants. And they say, your, well, we don't need a license. The state doesn't require you to have a license for a home grow. So you'd like to see a limit that's uh, something closer to 12 yes, plants no, per. I, I think that's something that makes a lot more sense.
0: On a more personal note, you're just back from a meeting of the Western Governors, there was a panel where you and other governors talked about failure, a setback that taught you a lesson. And you talked about a moment when you were mayor, um, when you proposed replacing the Merry Christmas sign outside the Denver City and County Building with a
1: Happy Holidays sign. Well, it's because uh, we were replacing them anyway. They're, they were worn out. So I see. Public so you, Works had, had come to me replaced. and said they were being replaced, yes. And you thought, <laughs> we'll do the I
0: suppose, sort of more inclusive Happy Holidays. You got some backlash and reversed your decision. This was more than a decade ago, I'll point out. What lesson did you get from that? So
1: the, the next morning, I got a call in my office, and, and uh, one of the reporters for the Denver Post was talking about one thing or another. And they said, oh, I heard you're going to replace the signs up there, put new signs in, and, the, and you're going to you know, get rid of the Merry Christmas one and put in something season's greetings. And I said, yeah, it's not going to cost anything extra. We're going to be so inclusive. Well, the next day, the headline was, Hick and hates, or Hick Hates Christmas. You know, literally, something like that. I, I, I can go find you the exact. We, we'll look in the archives. It was, it was pretty bold, and the talk radio lit up. I mean, they were having a field day. Here was this new mayor, who only been in office four months or five months, and, you know, I, I sat with my staff. And they said, "Well, once you take a position like that, you can't the dignity and the and the and the authority of the office of the mayor. You can't just say one thing one day and then the next day reverse it." I said, "Why well, can't? Shouldn't we just?" say we're sorry. And they go, no, I'm not sure you can do it. And so we discussed this for 15 minutes. And finally, I convinced them it wasn't the worst idea. To say sorry. And I'm pretty sure Lindy Eichenbaum-Lent, who's my communications director back then, I think she was the one who said, just because there are two O's in uh, Hickenlooper doesn't mean that that I'm Scrooge. And that taught you you that it's okay to say, I'm sorry as a politician. Well, you know, when, I imagine there are Jewish people who thought, I like the
0: idea of happy holidays.
1: There were. And, and trust me, many of them were my good friends. But to a person, every one of them uh, who I talked to said, boy, I understand exactly where you're coming from. It's not worth that battle for you to sacrifice major initiatives so that we get the Merry Christmas off the, the city hall. But, but I thought what was even more interesting was that the talk radio audience suddenly swung from attacking me relentlessly to saying, hey, here's a guy who just got elected. And, and he's willing to say he made a mistake and reverse himself. He doesn't sound like a politician. He sounds like what I would have done or what my neighbor Joe would have done. One last citizen question
0: uh, about your future. I think a lot of people are curious about what you'll do after your term ends in 2018. Justin Sykes of Denver asks, will you consider running for president or against
1: Senator Cory Gardner in 2020? <laughs> you know, I think, unfortunately, my primary goal, my sight, was really set on being commissioner of baseball. <laughs> um, but Bud Selig retired last year, and so they have a new commissioner of baseball. I really haven't thought too much about it. I, I want to take these next two years, and I don't want to get a pack and do all the work you do to, if you want to get ready for president. I want to make every effort in terms of workforce training, in terms of uh, controlling the, co- the rise in the cost of health care, in, in terms of outdoor recreation and, what we, and how we protect our landscapes. I want Colorado to be the model where, where people with different opinions are willing to come together and work together. Is it possible that 2014 was the last time you run for office? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a pretty good chance that that's the last, last time. Again, never say never. And if in 2018, when I'm done, if the country seems to be in a terrible position, I might well help someone else run for president. I could run for president myself. But I think it's for most people that are planning that, they go to work right now. Thanks for being with us. Always oh, a pleasure.
0: Democrat John Hickenlooper is Colorado's governor. He speaks with us regularly at the state capitol. At CPRNews.org, a web extra, the governor responds to a recommendation that he put someone in charge of aging related issues in Colorado. Coming up, the evolving sound of Boulder's Yonder Mountain String Band. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Boulder's Yonder Mountain String Band has a New Year's tradition. They play a series of concerts at the Boulder Theatre. And if you go this time, you might hear some of their newest music. They fall, they fall, they fall, they fall, they fall, they fall on
1: Allison. They fall, they fall, they fall, they fall,
3: they fall on Allison.
0: This is Allison. It's from their forthcoming album, Two founding members of the progressive bluegrass band, Adam Adjula and Dave Johnston, are here. In a little bit, they're going to share a track that no one outside the recording studio has heard yet. And uh, Adam, Dave, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks, Ryan. You released the music video to Allison, which we're hearing back in August. Rolling Stone called it, quote, one of the prettiest odes to being a creeper ever written. <laughs> <laughs> Dave what's the
3: story behind this song that sounds so kind of upbeat well um, I think what we have and I mean if you have a protagonist like in the song I, I based it off of this really old um, poem that I found uh, it's in my old Norton anthology a, a poem called Allison and it's about this guy who you know he's going crazy for this girl Allison and then it just doesn't happen well I, I kind of update I did update it actually I I just kind of empathized with maybe my younger self chasing after girls I could not get <laughs> and I tapped into that and um I sort of I don't know found a way into the song but I wanted But
0: it, it gets a, a little darker
3: than just someone who's
0: smitten, would you say?
3: Right. Yeah, I I would say that um there's um a less than casual observer thing going on with the guy, <laughs> you know, and so so this was like a book you had from what back in college or high school?
0: Oh yeah, like something like that.
3: Yeah, from college, I I studied um, English rhetoric and English, and so everyone has the Norton Anthology, exactly. And, and I just, I don't know, I'm not ashamed. Well, I'm not ashamed that I still read it.
0: <laughs> so it's something that you still pick up. Oh, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And is that a, a common inspiration for songs for Yonder Mountain String Band? Books,
3: poetry um for me uh, I mean and then I think it kind of filters through um, filters through different things and and um you know that's one of my inspirations and I think it's sort of you know I bring it to Adam or, or to Ben or uh, other folks play all night play all day channeling the time I put into the- hopelessness, it's all for you Here I am and I'm watching you I couldn't change my mind if I wanted to I might fake out and I might burn down
0: Adam, will you talk a little bit about the instrumentation on this tune?
4: Um, it is our... i got to make sure I have my public radio voice. Is this good? How does this sound? Is this I more? think it's intimate enough. Okay, yes, good, you're, you're doing just fine. Um, it's the same instrumentation that we have um, on stage. So basically we have our upright bass,
0: uh,
4: <clears throat> excuse me, uh, banjo, acoustic
0: guitar, mandolin, and fiddle. And so how often are songs worked out on tour, on stage, before you go to the studio? Um,
4: It seems like lately, like Dave brought up, that we write uh, together. Um, It's been a while since I've written a song without filtering it through someone else and saying like, hey, either like help me or what do you think? Mm -hmm. And so lately the stuff that I've been coming up with, and even to a large extent stuff Dave's been coming up with, we've been filtering it through each other and kind of coming up with a a song for all intents and purposes and then sending it that's not the only way because there's stuff that we write with everybody the whole band but um we bring it to the band usually we'll record or when we're on the road i'll be like hey check out we got this idea um the good thing about being an acoustic band um at least having acoustic instruments i mean we plug in when we play live yeah but the good thing about being an acoustic band is we don't have to rent like uh, studio space or um, rehearsal space to practice. We can practice on the bus in a green room in a venue, um, on stage for sound check. So we have a lot of options, and I think uh, it makes it a lot easier when when someone brings in a new song, even if it's a cover or or an original.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's good. You're not in like electric rock music in that in that case. Well, yeah. I mean, I like <laughs> I like I love electric rock music, but. You founded the band in 1998, have released more than a dozen live and studio albums, and your most recent, Black Sheep, came out last year. It was the first album after the departure of founding member and mandolin player Jeff Austin. Uh, I understand it was also the first time the band went with the traditional five-piece bluegrass lineup for the full record, so guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, bass. Why don't we hear the title track, Black Sheep?
3: Got the keys to the kingdom, got a ship to sail, a ship to sail, a ship to sail. Bird in the hand won't fly away, between too long in the break of day. Black sheep, black sheep, black sheep. Springtime on the mountainside, on the mountainside, on the
0: You've been at this as Yonder Mountain String Band for it's almost twenty years, right? Yes. How do you keep things fresh, and how do you keep interested?
3: Um, I that's a I love that question. I think it's uh, I think it's pertinent for anyone kind of uh, starting out or in the middle of things, or even at the end of things. <laughs> it's perfect <laughs> for everyone. It's perfect really, for, for everyone, and I think it's something you need to. Um, Constantly be aware of you know in maybe a playful sort of way, but I mean for me it's like um, I just feel like there's a lot of stuff that I'm still very interested in when it comes to um, performing or practicing or things I'm listening to or things I'm reading. Uh, you know, it all sort of kind of can be cross referenced with itself, and you can kind of find like a sort of inspiration in the pieces in the in the um, and in the different ways those things influence. The way you're thinking about things—it it strikes
0: me, Dave, that you draw a lot of connections between things. That's, I, that's what I'm hearing in your head.
3: I, <laughs> I, I feel like you know. I mean, connections are nice, uh-huh. and and I mean, let's I, for me, I, you can just observe that the you know the world is very fragmentary, and and you know you can see as many connections as you want, I guess, and some of them are really powerful and and inspiring, and uh, inspiring, powerful music is uh, something yeah you know, that you know I'm glad to be a part of and grateful I, for. I it. think
4: having new songs um keeps it fresh and also having uh a, a fairly new lineup um keeps it fresh. These guys um Ali and Jake are so
0: this is uh Jacob Jolliffe... Jolliffe, and, yeah and, and, and Ali Crawl. Yep. So uh Jacob Jolliffe is on mandolin, Allie's on violin. Correct. Two new members. And they are
4: um considerably younger than dave and i as well so it brings a uh uh, energy that uh, has been reviving definitely keeps you on your toes they're both great musicians as well
0: yeah that's so interesting new blood in a band isn't something that every band can count on but that's happened for you and that wasn't intimidating that's something you welcomed oh absolutely yeah
4: i mean it was uh it was exciting the whole time. I mean, it was ne- it was never uh, ne- not in my mind. It was never intimidating, and um, you know, playing music is supposed to be fun after all. You know, it's uh, like people say. What's the? I've heard the saying: um, we get paid to travel; we play for free.
0: You know, <laughs> <laughs> and traveling is often the, the the part that feels like work, as opposed to the playing. I'm guessing.
3: Absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, you know. I, I definitely think that the larger part of the psychological strain
0: probably the com- traveling. Yeah, it
3: comes from traveling.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner and two founding members of the Boulder Progressive Bluegrass Group, Yonder Mountain String Band, join me. That's Adam Ajala and Dave Johnston, and before we talk more with them, let's hear a new song. Bad Taste. I'm the
4: dog that's waiting next to you I'm black and white and wanting Something innocent that I can bite If you wanna kick me, kick me And my bone's already broken Close my eyes for me to see And it leaves a bad taste in my mouth a bad taste in my mouth.
0: Really gorgeous harmonies, by the way. Oh, thank you. Good job. <laughs> What's the song about? Uh,
4: well, do you want to talk a little about it too? Or it, yeah. this is this is actually kind of cool. The way this song came about was um, we have old uh, voice memos on our phones going back years, and they they're all saved. And I recorded the music to this. Um, in like 2011 and we were going through stuff earlier in like january i think or maybe december last year and dave was like i really like that he's like send me that one and i sent it to him and then he sent me back for uh, what ended up being the first verse of the song um and we, it's we've had a few times where we've written songs that way where i've he, i've had a melody and he's had lyrics and yeah. for some reason he was
3: drawn to it and i'll let you take it from here dave yeah uh, <laughs>
0: so you heard his voice memo from his phone
3: yeah, yeah, I heard I heard his voice memo from his phone, and then um, I, I definitely heard like a vocal melody over it. Um, although the specific melody did not come that way, it's just I'm like there is a vocal melody in that, and I don't know what suggested that, but I heard that, huh. and I went with that, and I started cleaning the kitchen and walking around with my notebook, and and you know, a lot of the lyrics came that way, and many, a lot of verses came that way in a matter of a half hour or something, and then. Um, I kind of filtered through and figured out the things that would work, you know. And so, what is the focus of the song? What is it about? Um, that's a good question. I, I think there's a lot of discussion in this song about like uh, what is black and white, and you know what is easy to understand, and what is entertaining, and you know, and you know who's doing the perceiving and stuff like that. I mean, I'm I'm being sort of uh, philosophical about it, I guess, but. <laughs>
4: Bad taste in my mouth. When it leads a bad taste in my mouth. When it leads a bad taste in my mouth. When it, it leaves a bad taste in my
0: mouth. So the band's sound is rooted in bluegrass. Is it true, though, that several of you didn't even hear bluegrass until your twenties? Yeah. I
4: mean, I didn't. I, I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts. There is a bluegrass scene there, but I, I didn't know about it. I grew up with classic rock for the most part, and um, that that goes for you know all of us, with the exception of Jacob. Really, um, he who's one of the newer members. Yeah, yeah. So it was uh, one of those things for me. I got into um, bluegrass via Olden in the Way and the Grateful Dead. Mm. You because you know, someone was like, "Hey, you know, Jerry Garcia used to play banjo." Really? And check out the band and kind of got into it that way. It was, you know, obviously before streaming music and even listening stations and CD shops and record stores. So it was kind of like a uh, the way that I was able to learn bluegrass was mostly from people who had existing albums and would say make a mixtape or something. I learned a lot of stuff from Dave. Um, when D- the band first started,
0: yeah, Dave. When were you exposed to bluegrass first?
3: Well, I was in I was in college as well. Um, I had a roommate. His name's John Sampson, and his dad was part of kind of like the bluegrass scene in, in Chicago. And um, he came down one year with a banjo to the dorms, and I picked up John's banjo, and I since it's an open tuning, it's easy to make music on it immediately, and so. I was drawn to the banjo, and then someone said, hey, you should check out this guy named Earl Scruggs. Ah. And then I, when I, once I heard Earl Scruggs, I was just like, like holy cow, what, what, ha- what happened there? And it made a big uh, imprint on my brain. On your brain. <laughs> yeah. That has lasted
0: for decades. Yes, yeah, still there. We're speaking with members of Boulder's Yonder Mountain String Band. So I want to talk about your annual New Year's concerts at the Boulder Theater. What started this tradition?
4: Uh, just, we all lived, I mean, at the time we were all living in this area. Ben's has since moved to California. Um, so, but it's, it seemed like a uh, natural to be home to bring in the new year. You mm. know, we, between here and between Boulder and Denver, it's been predominantly and Netherland if you go way back. Almost all of our New Year's, with the exception of, I think, two were in St. Louis. The rest of them have all been in the Front Range.
0: The Boulder Theater is so warm, too. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah,
3: it's a wonderful spot. We love playing there.
0: And what do you like about the New Year's tradition?
3: Uh, I mean, I like like that it's down the street. (laughs) Uh, That's nice. (laughs) Um, I mean, uh, Boulder is very, I don't know, it's just very charming, and it feels really good to be at home and and to play in such a uh, pretty place. It sounds great. and. I don't know. It just feels, uh, I don't know. It feels like home. And I think that's the most special part about it for me.
0: Beyond Boulder, that is, the Boulder Theater feels like home to you. Yeah. yeah. If you could collaborate with any bluegrass musician, who would it be?
4: Like living or dead? Oh, or? that's interesting. <laughs> I hadn't
0: considered the dead. Um, <laughs> let's if, go with living. Well, with so living, maybe I feel like we can like make we've this happen.
4: I feel we've already done it, I feel like. I mean, Del McCurry. Oh. In my opinion, I mean, the, the, and, his, and his kids and the guys in his band, Del McCurry band, it's, um, he's like the living, he's the one, he's, I guess, would be considered second generation of original bluegrass, right? Right. And he's still alive and he's still crushing it as far every time I see him. And he's just the, he's the real deal. And, it, you know, not only is he the real deal as far as his talent, but he's a real person and he's super nice and he's very friendly and he 's cool and, and he's and sat, a legend absolutely and he yeah. and he's when he well, sat in with us before and i 've had the pleasure of singing harmonies with him, which has been you know a little bit i 've been a little bit nervous doing stuff like that, but um, <laughs> that 's for me i don 't know, if, you know Dave, if we're talking living
3: i mean like I have a, like a whole host of esoteric banjo players that I would like to play <laughs> with i haven 't oh. played yeah you know, like Ben Eldridge from The Seldom Scene, or Alan Mundy from Country Gazette. Those are two guys that I love their banjo picking and I haven't gotten to play with yet. So that's two right off the top of my head.
0: How about one last song before we say goodbye? This is from the 2015 release Black Sheep, and the tune I think is called Annalie, correct?
4: Oh, cool. Yeah, sure. Here we go. Yeah, all right.
0: Annalie woke up every morning at the crack of dawn To the screaming inside her head Such great stories in these songs We heard from Adam Agela and Dave Johnston Two members of the Boulder Progressive Bluegrass Group Yonder Mountain String Band We asked them what they're listening to right now Songs they can't get enough of And you can find their picks at cprnews.org Don't
4: you know you gotta tune her out
0: Or she'll wind up under your skin She does it again and again Coming up, holiday gift ideas for your bookshelf. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What's better for the holidays than cracking open a good book or giving one as a gift? We're going to get some reading recommendations with some Colorado flavor. Back with us, lead buyer for the Tattered Cover Bookstore is Kathy Langer. And from the bookworm of Edwards, Nicole Magistro. Ladies, welcome back to the program.
5: Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. Thanks, Ryan.
0: So, Kathy, you have a pairing of books to start us off.
5: I do. The first one is a history of the uh, Indian Wars in the, the American West called The Earth is Weeping, by Peter Cousins, who is a military historian, and what he has set out to do, and I think succeeds, is to debunk a lot of the mythology about the American Indian Wars, both on the side of the army and on the side of the um, Indians who they were fighting um,
0: and These are wars that took place really in our backyard
5: in our backyard, and one of the one of the most important. Um, battles, massacres was the um, Sand Creek Massacre, which took place in Colorado in the early 1800s, I mean, early 1860s, um, which really was a jumping off point on both sides of what was done badly, what you should try not to do. But again, there were a lot of bad actors on both sides and a lot of of mistakes were made and people killed.
0: The earth is weeping. And you say the second Pick is a beautiful way to balance the tears of the first pick and I think it's a novel yeah
5: exactly it's news of the world by Paulette Giles and it takes place in post-civil War Texas and an older um, newsreader, an itinerant newsreader is charged with taking a uh, freed captive of the Kiowa, a 10year old girl named Joanna across Texas back to her uh, remaining family her parents were killed in a um, in a raid. And she has grown up with the Kiowa, lives like a Kiowa, thinks like a Kiowa. And she is not happy to be going back to the white world.
0: A newsreader? What do you mean by newsreader?
5: A newsreader. He goes from town to town. He has newspapers from around the country and around the world and hires out a hall. And the townspeople come and listen to him Read the news of what's happening in the world, and that's their entertainment. A lot of them are illiterate, so so he's bringing the news of the world to the small towns of Texas.
0: Wow, you have a passage to read. Speaking of reading, Kathy, I,
5: I do. It's the opening paragraph, and it, it starts: Wichita Falls, Texas, winter 1870. Captain Kidd laid out the Boston Morning Journal on the lectern and began to read from the article on the 15th Amendment. He had been born in 1798, and the third war of his lifetime had ended five years ago, and he hoped never to see another. But now the news of the world aged him more than time itself. Still, he stayed his rounds even during the cold spring rains. He had been at one time A printer, but the war had taken his press and everything else. The economy of the Confederacy had fallen apart even before the surrender. And so now he made his living in this drifting from one town to another in North Texas, with his newspapers and journals in a waterproof portfolio, and his coat collar turned up against the weather.
0: News of the World, one of the recommendations we're getting for holiday books. Nicole Magistro, your list includes a novel by... Denver author Eleanor Brown. What is this novel about?
2: That's right. The Light of Paris. Um, Eleanor Brown is, like you said, a Denver author. She's got a great knack for writing lovably flawed characters. And this second novel is the imagined relationship between Madeline and her grandmother Margie. Um, Madeline feels trapped in a bad marriage and sort of a shell of her former self. She longs for an adventure, and when she discovers a lost diary of her grandmother's scandalous trip to Jazz Age Paris, Ah. it's inspired to change her life, too. It's quite uh, salacious. Uh, This is a great read for book clubs and for fans of books that present that sort of tempting what-if kind of plot. Hmm. I curled up in front of the fireplace and read it in one sitting. I just loved it.
0: The Light of Paris by Denver author Eleanor Brown. And, oh, there's just something so irresistible about Jazz Age Paris. I want to go there.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. And I think the streets and the sounds and the sights come alive. Uh, The alternating narrative between Madeline and her grandmother really draw an interesting parallel between the two women uh, who didn't um, necessarily live in the same time or even know each other very well.
0: Kathy, you have a cookbook, I suppose, good for holiday dishes, except that it's healthy and nothing I've been eating lately is. So what do you have here?
5: Well, so it'll be a a good uh, balance. (laughs) (laughs) I have Eat, Drink, Shine, Inspiration from Our Kitchen. It's by Jennifer, Jessica, and Jill Emick. They are triplets who own and run Shine Restaurant and Gathering Place in Boulder. And I love this cookbook. It is healthy. It's actually paleo and gluten-free, but you don't have to live by those rules to really enjoy this beautiful cookbook. They have a great philosophy about healthy eating. They have wonderful recipes, easy to make. It's the kind of cookbook that I would use because it's not very difficult. And uh, <laughs> and the um, the photographs are beautiful, and it's got a lot of just inspiring messages and, and uh, tips and uh, it's lovely. I just love it.
0: You have it here. Why don't you open it to a random page and tell us what recipe you land on. So this is Eat, Drink, Shine by the Blissful Sisters. And what have you discovered for us here?
5: Let's see. Well, well, my favorite page, which I'm I'm cheating, I'm trying to flip to it, is um, Baked Eggs in Avocado Cups. And it's just this beautiful plate full of avocados that You've, you've baked the eggs in the avocado, and it just looks so luscious and, mm. and, and rich and yummy.
0: These recommendations will be at our website, cprnews.org, for holiday reads or holiday gifts. Nicole, back there in Edwards, you picked a book by Warren Miller, who's really well-known for making ski movies, not writing books so much.
2: That's right, although this is Warren's 11th book. Oh, my, uh, my, my. It is his, yes, it is his autobiography, and I think the one that really shines, he's 92 years old now, and has quite a bit of distance from the movies that still bear his name, but he was the one who made Ski Bums and the Mountain Lifestyle famous. Um, The autobiography adds to that legacy that's a visual one uh, full of hilarious stories from his very, very young days through his childhood and into the time where he first went out to um, kind of conquer the mountains. And he did this with his friend Ward Baker. Uh, They went around in a teardrop trailer and it was sub-zero temperatures. They were very used to their mattress being frozen on the bottom of the trailer. All their provisions didn't need refrigeration because it was cold and they were camping in the parking lot um, all winter long. I just love the poignant stories. I love how he tells the legacy of the films and the, the people who helped him create a real tradition for ski bums and the mountain lifestyle. And it's that's
0: that's called Freedom Found by Warren Miller, correct?
2: That's right. Freedom found. You
0: have another ski-themed book, or at least by a well-known Colorado ski racer. That's Lindsay Vaughn. What does she write about in Strong is the New Beautiful? What a great title.
2: It is a great title and a really inspiring book. Uh, It's meant for girls and women to really stand up against the idea that you need to go on a diet, you need to be thin, you need to have a certain body type. Lindsay stood up against a lot of those stereotypes and um, has created, obviously, a very strong and um, beautiful image for herself. Um, it's This book is full of training photographs. Uh, it's full of recipes. It's full of inspirational anecdotes. Um, and she really makes a case for defying expectations. Um, it's also really pretty real, down-to-earth. Um, her dogs make cameo appearances. Um, she looks very regular and uh, in her workout clothes as she's trying to figure out the best ways uh, through the course of her training uh, to make her into an elite athlete. And so uh, I love this book for a way to inspire people to, um, you know, just kind of get out there and be who they are.
0: Strong as the New Beautiful from... Lindsay Vaughn, Colorado ski racer, who has taken some you kind know, of physical hits of late. Let's wrap up. We have just about a minute, Kathy. You have two books for kids. What are they?
5: I have Sissy Bear at the Fort by Holly Arnold Kinney. Um, her family owned and she still owns and runs the Fort Restaurant in in the Denver area. And Sissy Bear in the early 1960s came to live as a bear cub and... Uh, it's a lovely story about the bear cub living at the Ford and, and her, her relationship with the family and their pet German shepherd. Their,
0: yeah, and they're really their pet bear in some ways. And uh, let's see, Bunny Slopes, Nicole, is the final choice, but we don't have much time. So you can check it out at our website, cprnews.org. Another one for young readers, an interactive picture book that uh, has a lot to do with skiing as well. Kathy Langer, lead buyer for the Tattered Cover Bookstore, and Nicole Magistro owns The Bookworm of Edwards. Again, a list of their recommendations at cprnews.org.